Thanks so much for listening to the Clifton Church of Christ sermon podcast. We really appreciate you taking the time to listen, and we hope if ever you're in Clifton, Texas, you'll stop by and say hello. We hope you enjoy this sermon. It's great to see all of you this morning, Um, and uh, for those of you who are visiting or uh, with us online, we're especially glad to have you. Um, We're in our series on Romans, and if you have any familiarity with Romans, the first, uh, what, what should I say, the first seven-ish chapters of it can kind of feel a little down, a little heavy, but Paul has a really great payoff eventually. We're just not getting there quite yet, so we're still in some of the stuff that's a little heavier and a little tough, but I feel excited because every time I prepare and study for this, I think uh, the groundwork that we're laying here for the payoff is, is hopefully still something that you can take away each and every week from what we're reading. And so we're going to just go ahead and jump right in it because I have a lot to cover. And if you would, so turn in your Bibles to Romans 2, uh, verses, and we're going to be reading today verses 1 through 16, uh, which I thought was very appropriate because today is January 16th. I noticed that today, 1-16. So look at that. God's timing is it's perfect. Um, but uh, one thing I want to also encourage you, if you saw in the back or over here, um, there are these things called Romans uh, Scripture Journals. Uh, if you have one, some of you may already have one, but they're totally free for you. If you'd like to make a donation for them, you can, but we got them because we did it with the John series. But basically, half the page is the Bible, and the other half of the page is blank. So if you want to take notes or anything or follow along, you can mark it up. And uh, if you don't like writing in your own Bible, you can mark this up. And as we go through major book series, you can save these over the years if you'd like to. Um, So let's go ahead and read, starting in verse uh, 16. You, therefore, a lot of people point out the fact that Paul is saying you, like kind of, uh, instead of now y'all, but this is you, therefore, have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself. Because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. Paul's saying we know when God judges, it's right because God is right, He is just, He is true. So He has the right to pass judgment, but not us. So when you, a mere human being, when you pass judgment on others and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of His kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead to your repentance, uh, lead you to repentance. I think this is a really great note here. Um, when we're looking at this, uh, one of the commentaries I read, it really talks here about how in this passage we're about to read is probably Paul's longest dialogue on what he understands as judgment, the final judgment. And it's a good reminder here that Paul throws this in, talking about the riches of God's kindness, his patience, and this idea that too often we treat you know, the Old Testament as God's judgment book and the New Testament as God's love book. And I think if you look at all of it, you should hopefully see that throughout there is continual moments where God mentions uh, the fact that a true and just God will make things right at one point, which we call judgment or the day of the Lord. And we see that from the Old Testament all the way to Revelation. And we see from Genesis through Revelation, God's constant kindness, His constant patience with these people. Second Peter 3.9 says basically this exact same thing Paul is saying in verse 4. Second Peter 3.9 says it very similarly. The Lord is not slow in keeping His promise about the day of the Lord. This whole chapter, 2 Peter 3, is about the day of the Lord. 
He's not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with us, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So what Paul is saying is, here are these people who pass judgment, who say, those people, they sin, but not me. Part of what he's saying is, well, you think that the reason you haven't faced judgment yet is because you're doing everything right. But really, it's because God is constantly trying to give us second chances, third chances, a hundredth thousandth chances for us to return and repent and come to know him. And if you think that he hasn't shown judgment because everything is going good for you, then as Paul would say in verse 4, that is, where does it say? That, that is showing contempt for the riches of God's kindness. So let's keep reading with verse, verse 5. But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. Okay, so this first section, the main thing that we need to talk about and we need to take away from this is the fact that you've got this letter that has, Paul has written to the church in Rome. And I've told you all before, so much of what we read in Rome, we need to keep in the context of the fact that this is a divided church with Gentile Christians and Jewish Christians. Um, about five years before this letter was written, the emperor, Claudius, kicked all of the Jews out of Rome. I don't know exactly how that would work, but basically he was annoyed with all the Jewish people. He said, y'all got to get out of here. And then Emperor Nero comes around, changes his mind, and lets all the Jews come back. And so you've got these, these Christians in Rome that are all these Gentile Christians that are now trying to get used to doing church again, where you've got all these Gentile Christians and now all these Jewish Christians have come back. And they're trying to figure out how to be unified and how to get along. And so you've got this great picture here where all of Romans 1, if you heard the sermon last week, the last sermon, you can hear Paul just going on and on about how we as people have taken God, the glory of God, and we've exchanged Him for idols. How people, by exchanging God, have given them their lives to all these lusts and desires and sinful things. And he goes on and on and on. And the picture you're supposed to get is at Romans 2, verse 16, is you're supposed to picture all the Jewish Christians in the, in the group nodding their heads, thinking, that's right, Paul, you get those Gentiles. You get on to them. You, you tell them where they're wrong, you know. You can see all the Jewish Christians are sitting there as Paul's going on and on about all these terrible things that people do. And the Jewish Christians are like, that's right, we don't do that, but those people do. But then at 2.16, that's where Paul turns and kind of looks at the religious people in the room and says, well, not so fast. You who pass judgment on them, you are just as in need of the gospel. And so this is the first major point. Paul is now in chapter 1. At the end of chapter 1, the gospel is for the, the pagan. It's for the, the lost people. And now he's saying the gospel is also for the religious people, the people in the room who don't think that they're lost. And I think uh, there's, here's a quote from Tim Keller. And I'm about to read, but before I read it, what I want you to think about, and I want you to wrap your minds around for a second, is just how, and I am one of the most guilty of this ever. How many of you have ever been to a, a youth conference or something? You've been to a, a place where you're maybe listening to a sermon and you're not necessarily in a church setting. And the speaker is going on and on about, yeah, if you're one of those people who do this, 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 and this, and you're sitting there going, I'm glad he's not talking to me right now. You know what I mean? You've been there before, right? 
He's talking to all these kids that came to Winterfest who don't go to church. He's talking to all these kids who come to Winterfest that they need to know that they need to get their lives straight. They need to get right church, you know, or they're in trouble, okay? And that's what's going on here in Rome, in this letter that Paul's writing. You've got the people nodding their heads going, yeah, that's not me. And now Paul is saying, actually, you are just as in need of this gospel, you who pass judgment. You think that you're not facing judgment because you're doing everything right. But really, that's just God's kindness and patience as he continually asks you to repent. Here's a quote from, from Tim Keller. The religious person may have utterly rejected all the idols society is worshiping. Remember, Romans 1 is all about exchanging God for these different idols. Uh, they may have, you may have utterly rejected all the idols society is worshiping. Statues or casual sex or career. You know, those things that sinners do. But they have idols in their hearts. They find their self-worth in their morality. Remember, anything you find your self-worth in is an idol. They find their self-worth in their morality, not in God. They find their Savior in their rule-keeping, not in God. They worship their goodness because their goodness will save them. Right? Wrong, says Paul. You're storing up wrath against yourself. And the best picture I can think of, the best illustration of this is a story that Jesus told that many of you have probably heard of. How many of you have ever heard of the parable of the prodigal son? Okay, you've heard of that story before? Well, the best way to describe this story is not the parable of the prodigal son, but it's called the, the parable of the two sons. Because so often we focus on, in the story, the younger son. But if you really read that story, the story is not about the younger son. The story is about both sons. So for those of you who don't remember the story, uh, the way it goes is you have this father with two sons, and the youngest son says something that you would never say to your father. He basically says, you know that money that I'm going to get from you when you die? I want you to just go ahead and give it to me. Go ahead and let me have it now. It's practically like saying, I wish you were dead already so I can get on with my life and have fun. And so the father surprisingly says, sure, you can have, uh, you can have what's your share. He runs off and he lives a life of exchange, as Romans 1 would say, exchanging the glory of the Father for the things that he wants. For, you know, whatever people did back then. I don't know. Did they have casinos back then or something? I'm just kidding. Um, uh, there's nothing wrong with casinos. But uh, uh, so, you know, he went and did all these bad things. And he gets to this point where he's blown through all the money. He's working for a man and he's looking at the food that the pigs are eating and he's saying, that looks better than what I'm eating. If I just went home, apologized to my dad and just said, listen, you don't even have to take me back as a son. If you just let me come back as a slave, as a servant, that would be better than what I'm going through now. And so he goes home, he's planning this speech out in his head. What am I going to say when I see dad? And then his father sees him a long way off and he does something that no Jewish, good Jewish man would do. He runs to his son. You would never want to do that. You would look embarrassing running like that. He runs to his son and he gives him a, a hug and he welcomes him home. And that's usually where we stop the story because that's the point is that younger sinner, you know, the sinful brother. And by the way, whenever I talk about in Romans this whole righteousness from God, there's very few better examples than that because not only does the father say, I forgive you, that's where we usually stop the righteousness. We usually say it's just the fact that we're forgiven. He doesn't just forgive the son. He elevates him to the place of being the best son ever. He takes off his cloak. He gives him his signet ring. says, you're not just forgiven. You are back to full status, okay? Which is what he does for us whenever we choose to have faith in Christ. He doesn't just say, hey, you poor sinner, I forgive you. He says, hey, you poor sinner, I forgive you. And here's the Congressional Medal of Honor, okay? 
That's what he does for us. Okay, so the older brother, though, sees all this happen. What does the older brother do? They're having the big party for the younger son, the celebration, and the older brother can't go inside. He's just so frustrated. And the dad's like, why don't you come on in? He's like, are you kidding me? I've spent my whole life earning that celebration. I've worked so hard. I deserve that party, and he doesn't deserve it. And this is where Romans 1 and 2 comes in. Romans 1 is about that younger brother, the one that's exchanged the glory of God for other idols and gods, the one that we all nod and go, yeah, they need it. They better get your judgment, God, because we are the older brother from Romans 2, the one who thinks, yeah, yeah, that person's a sinner. They're bad. They deserve that. I, on the other hand, don't deserve that kind of judgment. I, on the other hand, deserve all the good things that come to me. This is where I find myself. This is where many of us who grow up in church find ourselves. This older brother who is just as in need of, of God's gospel and his good news that your works don't save you. Because he thinks, he thinks the reason he deserves to be part of the Son is because he did all the work. But that's not, the, that's not it. And that's what Paul is saying here. Romans 1 is about the younger brothers. They are lost and condemned, worshiping idols. And Romans 2 is about older brothers, the people who are trying so hard to be good, the people who think God owes you because you are good, and you are just as lost as the younger brother. By the way, I said you because Paul was saying you, if that makes sense, in Romans 1.16. Religious people need the gospel just as much as irreligious, and irreligious people uh, and religious people often run from the truth of the gospel just as much as irreligious people run from the truth of the gospel. The heart of the gospel is that God's righteousness has been revealed so that it can be received, Romans 1.17. When we rely on anything or anyone except for Jesus to give us the righteousness from God, we are refusing to accept the gospel. Relying on God's rules to save us is as much self-reliance and rejection of God as ignoring God's rules. Let me say that again. Relying on following the rules to save us is just as much a rejection of the gospel as rejecting the rules. Okay? That's big stuff there. Got to chew on that for a little while. Do I need to say it a third time? I, I won't, but just remember that. This is what Paul is saying. This is what Paul is calling out in Romans chapter 2. So let's keep, let's keep reading. We're only going to read a little further, though, before I make you pause again. Romans, so Paul continues, God will repay each person according to what they have done. And that's where you kind of hear the record. It's like, wait a second. Paul, didn't you just get done saying that God doesn't grant us our salvation based on our works, but on our faith, right? Nod your heads. You've heard that before. You know, this, the whole letter for Paul is about you are saved by faith, not by works, right? And we, we have the class where we we have James that says, you know, show me your faith without works, you know, and then you, and you have the big argument. Here is the place where we do a few things. One, we have to remember, Paul has not contradicted himself. He hasn't, in 20 verses, changed his mind all of a sudden. That's not what's going on. But what he's doing is he's quoting from Psalm 62. And I won't make us read all of it, but if you go to Psalm 62, there are two groups of people in the psalm. David is writing this psalm, and he describes two people. In verses 3 and 4, he describes people who try to hurt God's king. In this case, it's David. People who speak lies. People who, as he would say, who, um, let me see. There are the people who try to, I think it says something like, they, they speak blessings, but their heart curses God. And then there's another type of person in Psalm 62. 
There's the people who, as he would say, find their rest and their salvation in God alone. And so for Paul, when he's quoting Psalm 62 here, it ends at the very end where it says he will repay each person according to what they have done. But he's encompassing the whole psalm when he references it by saying, listen, there are two types of people out there. There are people that find they are constantly blessing God with their mouth, but instead really their hearts aren't in the right place. And then there are those other people, the people that God um, repays, where they find their rest, they find their salvation, they find their security and their refuge in God alone. One of the points I want to make about this idea of God will repay each person according to what they've done, this idea of works, is do not think that for Paul, the fact that faith is the thing that saves you means he doesn't think works matter anymore. We're going to get there in Romans 6 where he says, shall we go on sinning so that grace may abound? By no means. He's clearly going to tell us he thinks you should live a life of the gospel. But an analogy I heard this week that I really liked is for Paul, when we think about faith and works, if you see an apple tree and the apple tree has tons of apples on it, you know that that tree is a living tree. It's not dead. But the apple is not the thing that gives life to the tree. It is the evidence that the tree has life. The roots are still the thing that give the tree life, okay? And so that's how Paul would probably describe it. If someone asked Paul, do you think that the apples give this tree life? Do you think that your works and your actions give life to the tree? He'd say, no, not at all. But a living tree that is receiving from its roots through faith, through the righteousness of Christ, will bear fruit. And that fruit is good. And uh, Jesus has plenty to say about fruits bearing good fruit or bad fruit, depending on the, the tree. So, uh, so let's keep reading from uh, verse... Uh, oh, yeah. The point, though, that you got to remember is that when we think about this idea of works and actions, so much of Romans 2 that Paul's getting at is you have all these religious people who are following all the rules, and the constant question Paul is saying is when you judge others, you probably keep thinking that what you do and your actions are the thing that's going to save you. And at the center of all this, Jesus wants your heart. Jesus wants so much about who your heart longs for, where you find your rest, than what rules you follow. Just like in the, the Beatitudes, whenever it says, you have heard that it was said, do not murder. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother shall, uh, well, uh, something like, shall experience like the, some fires or something like that. That's what he says. And uh, I think plenty of us go to bed at night and can think, did I murder anybody tonight? Did I murder anyone today? And we can find peace in that. But for him, he's like, no, no, no. It's where is your heart? Because I can think of many days where I've gone to bed and there was someone I was not kind to and I showed anger towards or I thought man that person is just a waste of breath you know why is that person and or that that person I don't know but is typing something online you know that, that anger and the question of where is your heart in all this so verse 7 let's go back to verse 7 to those who by persistence in doing good seek glory honor and immortality he will give eternal life but though, for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jews and then for the Gentile. By the way, he doesn't mean that to say like one's more important than the other. It's more God's message first was revealed to Abraham and his family and now it's being revealed to the rest of the world. It's not like a, one's more important than the other. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. For God does not show favoritism. You can't have a 
passage where he says, for the Jew and then the Gentile, and think it's about priority, with it follow it up with, but there is no favoritism. It's about the fact that no matter where you come from, no matter what race or ethnicity or your family status, God is just and he is going to uh, not show any favoritism to one or the other. This whole part here, though, about those who seek, who are seeking good, God gives for those who seek glory, honor, immortality, he gives eternal life. And those who are self-seeking and reject the truth, he will give wrath and anger. That still sounds a whole lot like works. That like if, you, if your works are good, then... But I, I think it goes back to what I mentioned last week. If we were designed by God to glorify him, he has set up this world in which when you actually live into that, life comes from it. Good things come from it. And when you choose to exchange what God made you to be for other things, then there is naturally decay that comes from that. That God's wrath is choosing to say, if you want to throw your life away, my wrath is shown as saying, okay, I'll let you do that, but I want you to know it's going to decay. It's going to make your life uh, constantly have things that decay. And I think we see that here. Um, one of the notes that I, I think is important is that we as people are wired in our DNA, or DNA might not be the right way to say it, in the way that God made us, we are wired to seek glory, honor, and immortality. And that for Paul, those aren't bad things. But the bad thing comes where are you choosing to seek it? Is your heart choosing to seek it from God? Or is your, are you trying to seek it by exchanging God and find glory and honor and immortality in other ways? Where is your heart at? Let's continually keep asking that question. Okay, so let's read in verse, uh, oh, verse 11. For God does not show favors. In verse 12, continuing on. All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law. The law is the Torah. He's referencing the, the, what the Jews would call the Torah. Um, and all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. So we're talking about these Jewish Christians. He's saying, listen, y'all were supposed to, we gave, God gave you this law to follow. And with that law, you're going to be judged by it. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight. It's not just if you have it, but it's those who actually do it and follow it who will be declared righteous. Um, it's best probably to read that as hypothetical. He's saying, listen, if you actually do the law, you are going to be declared righteous to, to the point Paul would then say, but none of us do. None of us ever truly follow everything that we're supposed to follow. Kind of like a hypothetical. Now verses 14 and 15 really confuse a lot of people. And including myself, and so I'm just going to kind of read it and try and give you a, a synopsis, uh, but then kind of move on from it. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for, it th for themselves, even though they do not have the law. He's saying, so when the Gentile people, even though they don't know the law, actually end up doing something that God required them to do, it's one of those things where, for Paul, he believes that intrinsically, in all people, God has designed us to have a certain awareness of, of good. And you might disagree with that, and I, could, I think that's a good argument. But for Paul, even from a child's age, if you had ten kids in a classroom and you gave eight of them chocolate milk, and two of them you didn't give anything, if one of them that has the milk goes, that's not really fair. For God, for Paul, that would be a definition of, at some level, in our hardwiring as people, we have a certain consciousness of, that's not right, okay? So he's saying, you Jews, you had the law. But Gentiles, they don't have some excuse of, well, we didn't have the law. It's, at some level, written in their hearts. They know what was right. Verse 15, they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts. 
Their consciousness are also bearing witness, and their thoughts sometimes accusing them, and other times even defending them. This will take place on the day when God judges people's secrets through Jesus Christ, as my gospel declares. Many of you might wonder, what, what does Paul mean when he says, as my gospel declares? Isn't this Jesus' gospel? And I think what Paul's saying here is, he's saying, when I declare the good news, when I declare the good news of God, I have to include this idea that someday Jesus will come and he will judge our hearts and he will judge all people. And you might be wondering, so you're telling me that for Paul, part of the reason why Jesus Christ and his salvation is such good news is the fact that Jesus is going to come and judge someday? That doesn't sound like it would make sense, right? That seems very contradictory. But for Paul, and I hope I can make, bring this point home, but for Paul, it is crucial that we understand the fact that someday, with no favoritism, a good and just God will come and he will judge the world. And that that is good news in Paul's eyes. And so here's where I will begin to attempt uh, to show why for Paul that is good news. Because God's just judgment is fundamental to his declaration of the good news of the cross. Without judgment, salvation has no meaning. Does that make sense? If there is no, nothing that, to be saved from, then there's no, nothing good about being saved. Okay? Um, let me keep reading a little bit more. Without the reality of God's present and future handing us over to what we choose, or as Paul calls it, his wrath, the cross is empty of its glory. So here is the last main point I hope you write down. No wrath, no cross. No handing over, no cross. Paul's concern is to show that the ground on which we stand, Gentile and Jew, non-religious and religious, rule-breaking and rule-keeping, is level. All of us don't live up to the life in which we were made to do, to glorify God with everything we do. All of us will face a just God saying, here is how you should live. It is only from this ground that we were able to look at the cross and the grace that comes from the cross and to see clearly how good news it is that Jesus came to set us free. We can't appreciate who Christ is unless we first acknowledge who we are as whether we are a not a, whether we're the younger brother who broke all the rules and we all go yeah he needs the cross Pfft, he needs that grace or we're the older brother who thinks we kept all the rules but we're still just as in need of the grace because in the same way we we are in trouble because we think our salvation is good enough you know what that sinner they deserve god's judgment but i don't because my salvation stands up and that is for Paul, that is the same as rejecting the gospel altogether. Charles Simeon, a famous uh, 18th and 19th century preacher, says this quote that I like. There are but two objects that I have ever desired to behold. The one is my own vileness, and the other is the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And I have always thought that they should be viewed together. So I have one analogy, uh, two analogies, and I think one's going to work. So I'm going to do the one that might not work first. Um, how many of you have heard of the book Count of Monte Cristo before? Anybody? Okay, I had to read that in high school. Also, there's a movie. That's a good movie. Uh, but uh, it's not quite the same as the book. But the premise is this guy, Edmund, Dante, Edmund Dantes, uh, is his best friend is jealous of his uh, wife. And so he finds a way to basically get him thrown in prison so that he can marry his, his wife. And uh, when 
Dantes gets out of prison, the whole premise of the book is his revenge against his enemies who you know, worked together to get him thrown into prison for I don't know how many years, a long time. But one of the things that the book does that the movie doesn't is that there is this one family, though, that was good to him, a, a family that treated him well. And what he does is he plots this massive scheme to try and bless this young guy. And one of the things that he does is he, this young guy has this girl that he loves, and I don't know why, but he basically makes it seem like this girl passes away. And the guy's heartbroken. But then he surprises him, and he's like, look, she's, she's okay, she's fine. And the guy's like, why'd you put me through all this? And he says, because only if you know the greatest suffering can you experience the greatest joy. That's his point that he makes. He said, I wanted you to experience the greatest joy there is. But I knew you couldn't really experience that unless it, you've been to the pit before and you've experienced the worst thing. Does that make sense? And so part of what I see Paul saying here and part of what he experiences is that the goodness of the cross and the grace and the righteousness, the unwarranted righteousness that comes from the faithfulness of Christ is only so good if you're able to see just how much we don't deserve it, just how much we don't live up. And the last analogy I want to use, this one I do think will work. When I had Landry Joe and Marshall, I remember the number of times where it would be late at night trying to get her or him to go to sleep and just being like, I'm miserable and I don't know how to solve this. And you know what I would often go to is I'd think, I should have treated my mom better. <laughs> because I would think about the fact that I didn't realize how much work my mom put into me. You know, I thought I was a pretty good kid. You know, I didn't, I stayed out of trouble for the most part. Maybe did a few things with some friends that probably shouldn't have done. Maybe was rude, but I was, I was a pretty good kid. But then when I saw just how much it was like, man, this baby is like totally helpless. And I feel like I'm working my tail off and they have no idea that I'm working my tail off. Does, does that make sense? And I think that part of what I see here is that the greater my awareness of what, how I used to be completely and totally helpless as the baby, the more appreciation that I have for my mom. And I think for Paul here, there's a lot of religious people that this letter, that are reading this letter. And there's a lot of, and by the way, when I say religious people, I'm in that group. I was born on third base with God. I was born right there on that pew, you know. I'm a religious person. And part of what I think Paul is saying is, listen, you don't appreciate the cross and the salvation enough because you think you've done enough to deserve it. And so part of what Paul is working so hard to do here in Romans 2 is to say, you don't deserve it. And that's good news because the second you realize how much you don't deserve it, the more your appreciation for what Christ has done on the cross goes up. If any of you would like to learn more about the good news that comes from the cross, if any of you are willing to stick through Romans for us to get to Romans chapter 8, I'd encourage you to come and there will be elders standing at the doors if you have anything you'd like prayer requests about. And uh, I ask that you would give us a chance to talk with you and, uh, as we stand and as we sing this song.